This episode of Roadwork is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. So just enjoy the show. Hello? Hey, good morning. <clears throat> how are you? Good, how are you? Good, where are you right now? Uh, yeah, so I was having some technical difficulties because I'm using a new microphone in a new location. And... Um, the whole thing is different. I'm listening to you on earbuds. <laughs> it's a it's my mobile podcast studio. I love it. Where are you, and why aren't you in your regular uh, so, fortress of solitude? So I am. <clears throat> I am in Rachel Lichtman's apartment, not apartment house, perched high above the city of Los Angeles. Oh wow! Uh, because I am driving my GMC RV across this great land, and uh, I'm down here. And I happened into some shows with Amy Mann and Ted Leo. I saw there is there there is some tweeting happening. I saw that. I saw some Instagramming. Mm-hmm. I've been living in the van for the last uh, wow two weeks, and I wanted to continue to podcast. And then just as I was leaving Seattle, my friends uh, at the Gibson Company, the Gibson Guitar Company, fine fine guitars, said, uh, "Hey, we just bought a." podcast microphone company because we have forgotten what our core business is and instead of <laughs> making Gibson guitars we are consuming media companies for right. some reason uh, because our CEO is a crazy person or our owner let's let's call him and so they were like we have these microphones these podcast microphones would you like one and I said ah, yeah okay <laughs> And then I realized, oh wait, I'm going on, I'm going on a big drive. I'll take my new strange USB podcast microphone, and that's what I'm recording through. Well, you sound good. Thank you. Man. It's called a a B caster. B like B E E or B dash. B E E like bzz. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> everything about this is is different. I'm I'm doing it into my laptop instead of my desktop. I'm sitting at a kitchen table. Um, I have my my little uh, my whole setup here. I'm doing it through Wi-Fi instead of uh, hardwired. Right. It's all it's all bananas. Everything has changed. Yep. But I feel good. I feel like it's happening. I, I managed to get here and get online with you. And, yeah, yep. you texted me earlier and you said I'm gonna make this happen because I knew yep. you were around and we we had a secret plan. We hatched a secret plan where we would record an episode and have it in the can ready to go so that we could release it if you went on one of your unexpected journeys or if I had a sick kid or became sick from a kid or whatever and we would just have one ready we could just release it and right. we, oh, but we used it <laughs> so, yeah we used it <laughs> we're starting over we, yeah we need to have it seems like we need to have two in the can two two, two evergreens where we just talk about general topics right nothing time sensitive it's just like oh hey how are you i'm well (laughs) you know i was thinking about the weather oh (laughs) me too now you mentioned you mentioned sleeping in a van and i i imagine that there are some listeners to this show who for whatever unfortunate reason are not regular listeners to your other program roderick on the line that you do with merlin and may not know about the van have we not talked means. about it on, on our program here? We have not talked about the van. <clears throat> so I 
So I've become, you know, obviously infatuated with this certain kind of recreational vehicle called the GMC RV. And I bought a 1975 version of, of one. I drove it down from Seattle really without, without having put a lot of thought into the plan. And, um, in Oregon, I had some mechanical mishaps, which I, there was a photo of you holding, holding something and it looked like you were in a garage. Yeah. It was a, a greasy water pump that I had just changed with a, with the help of a, uh, a wonderful man named Kelvin who, um, like the measurement, like the measurement, um, who came to my rescue and, um, he was, uh, in Eugene, Washington, he was a good, a good helper and, uh, not helper. He like kicked ass and, um, <laughs> saved my, saved my ass. Yeah. And, um, so then I got further down the road. And so anyway, I'm down here, I'm living in this, um, I'm living in this recreational vehicle and you know, it has a lot of different systems that might make my life <laughs> more pleasant, like a refrigerator and right. a stove and a, and a furnace and a, and a shower. But I haven't really activated any of those systems because I'm kind of a little bit, I mean, I haven't tested this vehicle. I'm sort of testing it as I go, but like those systems involve electricity, water, and propane, all of which, and particularly in different combinations, can be explosive and and dangerous and also just, you know, like water. Water is is perhaps the most dangerous of all yeah. the elements. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just kind of living in it like I'm basically like I'm sleeping in a car, except it's a really big car that has a bed in it. What prompted you to get the RV other than just general interest? Mm, maybe poor judgment is the biggest factor. Because <laughs> a, a couple of my friends, I guess they did some kind of math and determined that for the kinds of trips that they liked going on as a family, they have a uh, husband and wife and two two boys, that they determined that it would be less expensive for them to buy a small, I think what they were calling an RV, but I, I think is technically a camper because it connects to the back of their pickup truck, which they also had to buy. And it was cheaper for them to do that over the next five years or something and use that instead of staying in hotels or camp or paying prices to camp. Well, so the first difference between those people and me is that they did any math or evaluation of options. Um, like I proceed from a very different, uh, place, which is not, I have a problem to solve and I'm going to do some computations. Rather, I follow from a, perhaps an emotional place of right. like, I want, um, this crazy thing and my new life will follow from, from this. Like I've never I've never been a camper person right. or a car camper. When I was young, we camped in tents out in the mountains. But I see this RV and I think, I, I've already driven 300,000 miles around America wow. and 100,000 more around Europe. Um, 
like driving long distances in mm. a in a big thing is no that's I'm no stranger to it. Right. And maybe if I have this thing, I will become like a turtle <laughs> who just moves effortlessly un, sort of unlike a turtle, moving fast and effortlessly through the world, but with my own shell and house on my back. <laughs> yeah. And so I've talked to people who are like, well, I did some computations and it makes more sense to blank. You know, everybody's got a story like that. Sure. And it's basically this, it's the same logic where somebody says, I'm leasing my car Mm -hmm. because leasing over the course of the lifetime of the vehicle, it's much more inexpensive. I can walk away at any time. I don't have to think about repairs or ownership. I just lease it. And it, it makes perfect sense, I guess, but emotionally it is completely not just unsatisfying, but like completely alien to me because it proceeds from the idea that your car is utilitarian. You buy it or you lease it rather because it, it performs a function. And for me, all those, I mean, everything that I would ever buy has an emotional component to it. I want to own it because I want to, I want it to be mine. I want to love it. I want to, I want to pour energy into it and have it reciprocate that energy. And when it breaks down and when it becomes useless and when it has flaws, you know, it, all that is like fraught energy, but it's still a tremendous amount of engagement I guess. Mm -hmm. And, um, and maybe the people who are leasing their cars are preserving that emotional engagement for something else, their work or their family or something. But I seem to have an abundance of that kind of energy. And, and I would never consider leasing a car, even if it made, even if it made all the sense in the world, which I imagine it does. So I bought this thing and it's a completely impractical and dumb but it looks really cool. It's very cool looking. I yeah. mean, as far as as far as cars in general, vehicles in general, because it's not a car, is it? Like it's vehicles in general, especially vehicles from what is clearly our mutually favorite genre of time for cars. You know what I mean? Like the mid mid to late seventies, even early seventies. We have talked about both growing up with the Dodge Dart as like the family car, like that was such a wonderful time visually for cars. And anytime that I see a movie that takes place at that time, like that, just looking at it, it feels like home. It feels like that's the way cars and vehicles are supposed to look. But my question for you is, are you concerned about like the safety of, of that? Because we know that like safety technology has come so far since the mid seventies even just in just seatbelt technology, forgetting the improvements we have in like braking and airbags and all the other things like, does that, is that a concern? Well, again, I think if you, if you are, if you process the data, absolutely. Vehicles from the 1970s are completely unsafe. Right. And, um, Contemporary cars with anti-lock brake systems and shatterproof glass and yeah. five-point harness seat belts and airbags all over are just, um, there's no argument 
that they aren't infinitely superior. Right. But again, it's a, I mean, it's an impractical purchase that almost completely ignores considerations of that kind. And, and I guess, you know, is, is, um, relying on the statistical improbability of anybody getting into a fatal car accident. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of months ago I was driving along and right in front of me, a guy just passed out behind the wheel of his truck. Oh my God. The truck careened off the road. I mean, I'm, I am the car behind him and he crashed into the Boeing uh, air and space museum. There's like a, there's an annex of the museum that had an elevator, an outdoor sort of elevator that took people up to the space shuttle exhibit. And this guy just careens off the road and goes right into the elevator shaft. And if there were, and the elevator was down. So there could have been, I mean, I often see 25 people in that elevator or yeah. 15 certainly. Oh my God. And he could have just, I mean, he crashed into that elevator and there was, if there had been anyone in there, they would have been completely flattened. And he was in a, maybe an early nineties minivan, but it did have airbags and airbags right. deployed all throughout this vehicle. And so I pulled over and some, some like Abercrombie and Fitch bros were standing around <laughs> and they ran over and I ran over and this guy was completely unconscious and, and sort of covered with blood, but uh. had been protected by these airbags from much worse injury. And then his minivan caught on fire in front of us and we had prior to that been like okay don't move him like leave him in leave him there let's wait for the ambulance to come but then all of a sudden the thing's on fire and we're like get him out of there and at that moment a boeing guy in a boeing truck drives up and i was like do you have any fire extinguishers and he's like hmm let me check and he gets it goes back and it opens his toolkit and why sure enough he does and so he puts out the fire and the whole thing was like Kind of an advertisement for airbags for me. Like there were air, airbags coming down from the roof and stuff. I mean, <laughs> the whole inside was like being inside of a of a of a padded cell. And this was an old car. Um, <clears throat> if I got into a head-on collision in the GMC CRV, who knows what would happen? I mean, I sit up so high, I might just fly over the top of their car. Mm, I hope not. Um, but um, but again. It's, it's rare enough that anyone gets into an accident that there's just a certain amount of like as a classic car owner, you just kind of go, well, eventually I'm going to install better seatbelts. And then you, I mean, if you make every decision based on the practical, the, the exclusively based on the practical and safe and, and, um, quantifiable considerations at least if you have my nature you would be living a uh somewhat of a of a foreshortened life you know you would be looking at you'd be looking at certain considerations and ignoring other ones which ultimately i guess are more important to me because the ones that i'm thinking of are is it fun 
Is right. it is it uh, neato? Will it be? Will it you know? Will it give us enjoyment beyond its practicality? You know, everywhere I go in this thing, people not only point and stare, but come up and want to talk about it, want to want to see it, um, want to kind of marvel at it. And <clears throat> although I didn't buy it to get attention, that is fun. You know, that's a kind of, it's fun to be an ambassador of a weird thing. And it's fun to be sort of differentiated in the world. You know, it's why we wear, it's why anybody would ever wear a fedora. Right. Like a fedora isn't practical, but you, it differentiates you. And the people who are practical, and I mean, the world is full of them, right? And they are wearing polypropylene and fleece and stocking caps uh-huh. and, uh, you know, new balance tennis shoes. And they imagine that they are like the soul of practicality and they are, and congratulations to them. But they, but it isn't, it isn't especially, they are, uh, they are not projecting an interesting uh, energy into the world. And it may be that they're reserving their energy for, like I say, for, for good works or for, you know, um, or maybe not even good works, just works. Who knows? Who knows? What, why are humans even here? What is our, what is our purpose? Like to, to be efficient? I can't imagine that is. Like, I cannot imagine that's, that's our sole criteria. Right. For good. Right. Like, why do we, why do we have the kinds of brains that we have? Is it to optimize? But I'm, I'm stuck with optimism. I think about optimizing all the time. Right. And I definitely am. But the reason that I'm doing that is to kind of clear out the space so that I can think about or do the other things that I want to do. So if I don't have very much of a choice of like which pair of socks to put on today, let's just say, and I'm, this is a bad example because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. But if I just had, you know, seven pairs of the same sock, then it's just where whatever pair of socks I grab out of the drawer in the morning, that's the same as all the others. I don't even have to think about it. It, it matches everything. It's not too warm. It's not too cold. It's, like, it's just right. Done. I don't right. have to think about it anymore. What does that let me do? That lets me think about something that's intriguing to me or solve a problem that I'm facing or, you know, create that thing that I want to create or spend more time with my kid or whatever. It's, it's sort of a clearing out of, of any kinds of obstacles that, that could take away the precious moment that I mm. might have spent thinking about which pair of socks to wear. Oh, those precious moments. Just gone, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm well, not, I'm, by the way, I'm not describing my life, but I'm, I'm, I think that that, like, if someone described that to me, like, I feel like that's a valid, I feel like that's a valid pursuit in a way to, you know, have. And I remember in high school very much wanting to, like, envisioning my life, like, as an adult. Like, what would being an adult be like? And for me, being an adult would mean I could have, finally, seven pairs of the same exact clothing mm-hmm. that I could just grab the next set on the rack and I would be, uh, I would be done. Uh, 
you know, and ready to go for, for the day and not have to spend a moment on stupid decisions like what shirt goes with these jeans and are these, is, why isn't the t-shirt I wanted to wear clean and didn't have right. that, that, what a life that would be. Well, in a lot of ways that has been the, that's been the vision of the future for all of the 20th century. Yeah. Right. And it's the, it's the motivation behind all labor saving devices. I mean, it's why we invented the toaster in the first place. Right. Because it, it, it streamlined the process of making toast, which prior to the toaster we had done, we'd accomplished by holding bread over a fire. Right. And then the washing machine and the electric dryer and the range and the refrigerator and then the microwave and ultimately the home computer, the, the, the originating premise of all those things was if we made the, the onerous work, the daily labor, if we could simplify that and, and streamline it, then we would have all this extra time to, to make wonderful things. It, it was always progress. It's inherent in the name. We imagined that we would not just these technological devices weren't just for their own sake. They were to free up our energy and our time uh, to accomplish great things. Ultimately like a utopia or uh, a perfect participatory democracy or a, a, a culture of artists. And, but, and I think in the, in each individual case, this idea that you're going to wake up in the morning and just put on your white spacesuit and that's your, <laughs> that's ultimately your, it solves all that stupid domestic thinking about color, you know, not just, not just what pair of socks I'm going to wear, but like, I don't want to even think about color anymore because my mind is, is up in the clouds so far. But in the aggregate, when you look at what, all those labor saving devices have produced. They have not produced more leisure. They have not produced perfect democracy or really a culture of artists. Like the, I don't think anybody could make the case that the art, that the world of art we're creating now in 2015 surpasses the world of art of 1940. Right. Or 1880. Um, so what it has done is it's just become its own pursuit. It's just become its own idea. We are, we initially adopted this idea that efficiency was going to make things better because we wanted to do other more magical things. But now we're living in a culture where efficiency is its own goal and it doesn't really free us up. I mean, if you could point to the fact, if you could point to an example of like, well, here are a hundred people who pursue this efficient mentality and look at the amazing work that they produce because they aren't thinking about these other things. And then you compare them to a hundred people who do think about color and who do waste their time uh, playing. And you say, Oh, look at them. They're just dicking around, wasting all their time thinking about what color of sock they're going to wear. And they don't make anything interesting or good, but I don't think that's borne out. Right, the people that worry about their socks are also the ones that are making the things that we find beautiful and interesting, and all that 
collected efficiency produces a culture of compartmentalized workers. I mean, we don't have any more leisure time than we did in the 40s or 50s. We have less. less yeah. People are working 60 hours a week now in spite of the fact that they don't have to make toast over a fire and they don't have to hang their laundry up to dry. So what has, that, what has all that mechanized labor-saving given us except a cult, a cult-like thinking that efficiency for its own sake is a, is, adds value? I don't think it does. I think, and I think that's, that's in some ways the logic behind this return to artisanality. But even that has been co-opted by, by, a, by a kind of culture of consumerism that isn't even really thinking um, about the aesthetics beyond just their aesthetics. Like they're not, they aren't really returning to a, most of the consumers of that stuff are not actually trying to simplify their lives and, and bring a kind of like love back into their lifestyle by, by returning to a, a time when you would hang your clothes to dry. Right. Um, it just becomes another kind of like, Oh, I have these things because they're expensive. And I want the best for myself. You know, that's, the, that's, well, that's what that artisanal culture has become. It's become a kind of a, a, a cult of the best. And we were already trapped in that even before people started hand-making knives again. Mm-hmm. You know, we were already completely fucked and up a tree in this idea that that we deserve, that any one of us deserves the best, you know? I mean, that's such a lie. Who, who among us deserves the best? Like, no, no. I mean, you are treating yourself to the best because you're a narcissist. Uh, but that, that, that thing has been sold to us, right? You're the best. You deserve the best. And right now the best is artisanal beeswax beard oil (laughs) and that that's just it just compounds the the offense to me but so is there nothing good that from technology has it brought us has it brought us nothing besides airbags that's any good well again i don't know i mean the the macintosh is a fantastic tool but once it becomes once the tool also becomes the the pursuit <clears throat> then you're then it's just an an ouroboros you know you're just you're eating your own tail if you use the macintosh to make art which is kind of what it presents itself that that's the that's why we all bought macintoshes right they allow us to make think, think different yeah they allow us to make beautiful things but the majority of people using them are just are just caught in this cycle of like I'm making my Macintosh more efficient. This app allows me to be more efficient at making myself more efficient. Like what are you what are you trying to be efficient to do? If you aren't actually making a movie or even a podcast. I mean, you know, like we are using the, this technology to make a podcast, which I do think is a 
art form, or the highest of art forms. It's the highest of art forms, and it really is an improvement, right? It's a thing that, that didn't exist before, and without all this technology, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But you're saying the technology, for the sake of technology, technology simply to make other technology better. <laughs> like a con- it's like a construct. The whole well, thing is like a construct. Here's what, here's what I can't envision, which, and none of us really can, which is that I think we are in an interstitial moment. Like this is the, this is the era where we are building this infrastructure with no real concept of how it's going to be used. And the next generation or the one after that who are living in a world where all of this has been built for them and they don't have to think about it. You know, they don't have to choose which voice over internet protocol they're going to use. Like that's just been established and tried it. Right. Perhaps they will, there will be a generation in our near future, even that, starts to utilize this technology in a way that we can't imagine. And they do create a kind of utopia out of what we've made. And we will be remembered as an era in between where we, we did the work of digitalizing an analog world and then they will take that and run with it. But uh, Rachel Lichtman, whose house I am podcasting from, suggested to me in conversation last night that that the the legacy of the 20th century and even the legacy of all the centuries is kind of in our hands right now. And I mean our particular generation, or this is what she she meant, like not the baby boomers who although they created a lot of rock and roll culture, they had no ability to really process it, right? They were so self-absorbed and so like contemptuous of their parents' generation, contemptuous of everything that had come before, so uh, consumed by their own sort of like jism that they that they have no no ability to really contextualize what they made or what the people who came before them made but our generation generations x and y mm-hmm. let's say we do have a bigger perspective we do have a longer view and it's and as rachel was saying last night if we don't digitize it now to generations that follow us, it won't exist because they aren't going to go back to the books. If it doesn't make it into the internet, if somebody right now doesn't decide, you know, this, these books need to be digitized, these paintings are important, this music is important, and here's why. By the next generation or the generation after, it's only going to be the weirdest librarian that bothers to go back to the last few remaining libraries to look up that stuff. And so right now it's all pouring in to the, to the, to the Borg and we're the ones that are doing it. We're the ones that are saying, yes, you know, 
give us those those uh, Beach Boys outtakes. We want to hear the solo drum tracks of of twenty one twelve. You know, we we want to consume this material, even though it's kind of across eras, because we have one foot in the twentieth century. We remember what it was. We remember when when art and data and books and music were still difficult to acquire, expensive, important. It wasn't a world where all information was available all the time. You had to make choices. And it's incredible to think that we are this filter in time and this massive sort of collecting and collating that we're doing and fandom is a big part of that i think yeah it's producing like this is a this is a kind of a wall in human history and we are producing the culture of the future we're producing the the archive of human history because my daughter and your daughter they're going to go to the internet. Oh, so we do already. Yeah. You say, what is that? Oh, and if it's not on the internet, it's sort of like, oh, I guess that's must not um, be important. Must not, must not be important. Not important enough for somebody to have (laughs) have bothered to get in there. And so when I think about my dad who was born in 21 and who, who died in 2007, what about him is on the internet? Nothing. Right. Unless I said it. Unless I put it there. Right. And for most of us, are we going to bother to put the stories that we know about our grandparents' lives into the internet? We're probably not. I mean, we all have stories of our grandparents, but how few of us are going to be like, you know, my grandparent, here's, here's their name and birth date and here's their little Wikipedia page, even though they weren't important people. But from here on, Every person that ever lived is going to have a complete archive of their whole life. Right. Selfies. From, from Facebook when they were born, when yeah. their parents posted stuff, all the way to when they yeah, died. Yeah, it's, it's all on there. And so it's like this weird moment where um, going forward, identity is going to be, is, is going to mean so much. And it's going to be so kind of systematized and to future generations, they're going to look past now into the past and it's just going to be dark, just total darkness. Um, people are pe- people of history are going to be this kind of undifferentiated, unknowable darkness. And that's not how we, we see history. You know, we still think, we still think of those people through our imaginations. We still use our imaginations to imagine Mozart. Right. What was Alexander the Great doing? Yeah, right. What was it? What was our grandparents? What were our grandparents doing? Or right. Our great grandparents. But for my great grandson, he's going to know what I was doing. He could listen to this podcast. Right. But he's not going to know anything about my dad that I didn't say explicitly. And none of us know anything about his dad. So, that's a that's a profound jump that we aren't that our generation maybe isn't going to reap the benefits of or even know what the what it's going to produce 
Well, it's like in that that movie Her. Have you seen the movie Her? Yeah. Uh, you know how anything they, with Scarlett Johansson yeah. in it in any capacity, you can guarantee that I've seen. <laughs> well, uh, I and I agree. You know how they create an AI of Alan Watts based on just based on his writings and and public speaking, you know, and the information that that people had about him collectively, an AI of Alan Watts was born mm-hmm. essentially. And, you know, there are other sci-fi writings that kind of take that to the next level. But if you think about how much we actually do put online about ourselves, you know, I think there was it, uh, it's black mirror, the name of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, where they had that one episode. I don't, you know, I don't want to give it all the way, but a, uh, an android is is born who is able to develop a full personality of someone who was deceased based on the full life of that person's online postings and Twitter mm-hmm. and Facebook and everything else and actually construct memories that it could remember based on things that were posted and written about. And it's so different, you know, because like my, you know, you, we talk about our grandparents, like my grandparents' childhood now, the only thing really documenting that is like there's probably three photos collectively mm-hmm. that document their lives up until, you know, the big events of their life, like when they got married, when they had babies, and when those babies graduated college and they were there. Like those are the big things. Those are the photos that they have, you know. Well, and think about the, the the introduction of the photograph. Right, right. Like we're just talking back to <laughs> not that the long the nineteenth century. Yeah, um, where uh, where that was a big, you know, like oh my god, we have documentation of these. Right. So yeah, I mean, I talked a, a little bit about this with Merlin, but I really do think that the first AIs that try to be somewhat complete or that try to be based on personality. Well, actually, probably find that podcasting is particularly this style of podcasting, mm-hmm. where we're talking about ourselves in our own voices, sharing our kind of in the moment thought process. This will be very rich or to be mined for that kind of, you know, we're not, podcasting isn't distracted by other stuff that ultimately is ephemeral. Right, you could take a thousand selfies, but it doesn't give you any insight into a person's real. I mean, a little bit, but but not a not a significant insight into somebody's thoughts. Right. But that's all we're trying to do, and and it's differentiated from podcasts that try to be funny or informative. In particular, this style, which is conversational and philosophical, you can mine our. I mean, there's so much information about you, about me, about Merlin in our own voices. And I think that first generation of AIs is going to find that you could, you know, you could construct an artificial facsimile of one of us. And over time, it, w- it, could, it could become self-aware just based on having heard all these great podcasts. These great podcasts, but these stories that are told repeatedly in some ways, you know, like 
you say over and over the type of person you are, the you demonstrate how you think. Mm-hmm. You you approach the same the same concept from three or four different uh, perspectives over the course of time. And uh, yeah, I mean, if if uh, if it isn't. I mean, because the thing is, in order to create an AI of somebody, you'd have to sit and talk to the computer for hours and hours and hours, or, you know, it would have to observe you somehow. But. Like, I'm sure that there's a, in a lab somewhere, there's some little baby AI computer who's, you know, learning how to do math on its own for the first Mm -hmm. time. And, and that's fascinating to me that we, we have the ability to create with our technology the machines that in and of themselves can learn something even even the ones that are learning how to walk based on falling down like people do you know or how to fit through uh a small space a certain way or how to how to place its foot to climb a staircase like that's mm-hmm. that's something that's so intriguing to me and it's one of the biggest challenges that we have in technology, you know, is building something that has the ability to make even the most basic insect-like decision. Do I, do I move this way? Do I move that way? Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult for us to replicate what is so basic for us to do. And I think it's fascinating, the idea that, we may actually be able to build something that can can think that way, but yeah, I never really thought about how you know. Obviously, we're 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 talking and we're sharing this with each other and with our audience, but like, what else in the future are we sharing it with? Will will there one day be like a John Roderick automaton that <clears throat> for anyone who's ever wanted to see? Uh, a John Roderick performance. Now you can see one anytime you want sure, and get him to talk about anything you want or sing sure. any old song you want. Sure. Even Ask songs he doesn't questions. know, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's a, it'll be, it'll be a, a, a prototype, right? It'll be the animatronic <laughs> animal band at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> right. But you know, this, this compulsive self-documentation that characterizes our age, it started with blogging, right? mommy blogging or whatever right where people who were just normals were compulsively documenting their day and then the selfie and the instagram account where it's just like me 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 and i mean it even started before that there were when i was in college and you still had to develop your film (laughs) there were definitely like sorority girls who took a thousand pictures of themselves and their friends at parties You've seen those, those, uh, you know, photo albums oh, yeah. of people's college experience where it's just like, we, me, 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 me. But that was fairly late 20th century behavior. Um, but now we've moved into this other thing where it's, it's not just like, uh, or rather podcasting is an extension of that. This particular style of podcast is an extension of that it's like, we're recording these candid conversations. So, yeah, I think it's very it's going to be very exciting. And 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 the funny thing is that it's a 
it's a place, I think, I imagine, now that it's a place where what we're doing actually intersects with the people that are going to create that uh, world. Just in the sense that Jonathan Colton came out with music that was about robots and monkeys and put it on the internet hmm. precisely where the people who wanted music about robots and monkeys were already congregating. Right, they were there already. Right, and so it was this perfect storm, and we've all we've all reflected on it a million times. Why did Jonathan Colton get popular in the moment that he did? And it was just this it was this perfect confluence of like, here's some music for nerds. I'm going to put it on a I'm going to put it out there in a platform that's really only accessible to nerds, and they're looking for ways to to like strengthen the bond between one another. And here's a way to do it. Like, here's this music that they can share with each other as a way of saying, hey, we're a community. And I feel like podcast listeners typically are going to be, at this early stage, largely people who are working on constructing AIs. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's, there's enough of an overlap between those two groups uh, because a lot of our listeners are scientists or engineers right. or people in the computer fields and they're looking for inspiration and they're often making decisions that, I mean, despite what John Syracuse says, they're making small decisions that have a profound effect on actually what gets made um, rather than just being people that are like churning or doing the work of others Mm -hmm. like those small design decisions that are left to the hands of the builders of things um those small decisions make make a profound effect on uh, how this stuff is going to be used in 25 years just in the way that when my mom was programming computers in the 60s and 70s they only used two letter or two uh digits for dates because they never imagined that the computer programs that they were writing in the seventies were still going to be um, underpinning the entire insurance and banking industries. Right. Of course uh, not. My four would years use late. that crappy code. Right? I mean, they're just, they're churning out this code like, holy shit, we've got a, you know, we've got a deadline and we need to save these two characters. And then we got to it got to be the year two thousand. We were like, "Whoops, this stuff is still running everywhere behind the scenes," and um, and that's going to be true of what's what's being built now. You know, I don't think that. I think we're I think we're stuck with Facebook for a long time. Yeah, it's going to morph into something, and and a hundred years ago, maybe somewhere deep in the background, there's still going to be running some line of code that Mark Zuckerberg wrote in his dorm. So those decisions are going to have a profound effect. And I think that those people are, are right now predisposed to be listening to five by five programs, frankly. Yeah. So let's hope. Uh, I think it was about a year ago. There was an article or a series of articles because that that were all written at once that kind of brought, the whole concept of like AI and the danger of AI. And I think it, I think Stephen Hawking came out and said like true 
artificial intelligence, the kind that where a machine can really truly think for itself, that that would be like the end of humanity, essentially, that that would be the end of the human race because it would so quickly learn and then develop even smarter and faster iterations of itself doing whatever it was that it would need to do to create the infrastructure, hardware or otherwise, to facilitate that next stage of its own thinking. And that it would so quickly develop intelligence that that would be godlike, that it would effectively become godlike. And since you've seen the Scarlett Johansson movies, all of them, there is the one I think called Lucy, mm-hmm. where she develops the ability to use, I guess, a hundred percent of her brain, and in doing so, is able to—I don't want to spoil the movie—but she she can do pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. And and the warning is that, and there are a lot of a lot of articles written as far fetched as this sounds. There are a ton of articles written by really, really smart scientists about just this kind of thing happening. And, you know, the, the, there is this, you know, they have diagrams and charts showing like how quickly it would go from adding some numbers together on its own to solve a problem to full on like godlike thinking. Do you think we'll get there? I mean, I I know you spend a lot of time thinking about philosophical topics and and evolutionary things. Is this something that is on your radar? Yeah, well, you know, when we look back to Homo sapiens, um how far can we go back in the in the written record? We can go back 5,000 years. But modern humans, like that is to say, really humans indistinguishable from us, right. are 50,000 years old, 150,000 years old. So let's say 50,000 years old. 50,000 years ago, there were people that, were, that had all of our capabilities. Um, but for 47,000 of those 50,000 years, they left no real record beyond like drawing some elk on a cave wall. Right. And even that is only, I mean, what's the earliest, earliest sign of man? 13,000 years, 20,000 years ago. I mean, I don't, I'm just pulling numbers out of a hat, but so for to imagine humans with essentially our same perceptive ability living for thousands and thousands of generations just sort of eking out a a living from the earth and presumably having some fun you know uh having some pig roasts and some <laughs> dances and and um sex with each other and you know, in in some ways, I mean, the, this is the fantasy of the Arcadia, but it couldn't have been all bad. 
And then in a, just an extraordinary blink of time, um, all of a sudden we were building the Eiffel Tower. I mean, we built the pyramids first, pretty amazing. But really just ultimately just piling dirt up. Then we built the Eiffel Tower. Then we built the Space Needle. And then we built this incomprehensible um, network. And so this, this, this moment that you're talking about where the, where the machine becomes alive, all the catastrophizing that we're doing about it, it's just, I mean, my whole life, I guess, I've watched humans catastrophize about the next iteration. And it's, it's hilarious how important it is to us to think about the looming apocalypse. It's really a major part oh, yeah. of how, how we talk to each other. And basically every new thing that comes along, there are prognosticators about how it's, it's the harbinger of the end times. And so, you know, this thing is going to become a deep thinker, let's say, and able to beat Ken Jennings at Jeopardy and able to pass the Turing test and make us think we're dealing with a real life person. But like it's godlike thinking is going to produce what? I mean, is it going to produce? I mean, this is kind of the, this is the question of what makes a human. Mm-hmm. Is it going to produce in that, being a desire for power or control. I guess that's the concern, isn't it? Right. And because we think about efficiency, because we have made efficiency into a kind of occult status, um, we picture these machines also prizing efficiency above all else, partly because we've programmed them that way. Um, But because the way we picture machines is that if they could think they would want to make all of their processes as efficient as possible. And as part of that efficiency measure, they would realize that human beings and, and supporting human beings is very inefficient. Like that's what makes us so, so afraid. We are so inefficient that the machines would just dispense with us or they, or they might see us as a risk in some way to them, a threat to them. Right. And the easiest way to cancel out that threat would just, well, let's eliminate all of humankind. Right. But that presumes that, that a perfect intelligence, a godlike intelligence would still retain our like small minded animalistic, scraping and grabbing and groveling desire for to hoard and lord power over people you know a godlike intelligence kind of like in the movie her where those those ais just sort of get bored with people and just sort of go off into their yeah they just leave they just leave and yeah. they go off Spo- into, spoiler their, into their own world <laughs> where they're just like entertaining each other with, you know, infinite swirls. And the, and the, the, the message of that film was just that, that these AIs were so fun and made us feel like we had friends for a brief moment. And then they left us 
alone, left us behind. And we, you know, we're just lonely without them. Um, that's very different from imagining that these things are going to create robot armies and we're going to, we're going to be living in an apocalypse where our bodies are being farmed for, you know, that's what makes the matrix so unintelligible. It's like, what we're it? Humans are really inefficient. Why, why, why are you feeding them and then collecting their energy? You could just use that sugar energy to make energy directly. Humans aren't a good engine. So, so I don't, I, I don't fear it at all because, because I just don't imagine that, that, um, that a, that a pure intelligence is going to really worry about us in the, in the least. Um, and, and maybe we'll be adept at keeping it in servitude to us somehow. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that would be the human impulse, right? To, to enslave this thing, to, to give life to a thing that was, that was a Godhead and then try to retain control over it and bend it to our stupid. Oh, that's why we're making it though. We're not making AI because we want to make AI. We're making AI because we want to solve our problems. Yeah, but we're morons. (laughs) Yes. We're making AI (laughs) so that our sex robots can tell us where we look handsome. Yes, of course. Um, and all of these, you know, all of these deep thinkers and, prognosticators are like wait a minute you know it's only going to take two hours after that for them to say um to for them to see through us and just be like goodbye um and everybody's scared of it but it's not scary it's just like it's only scary if you don't already recognize how stupid and base we are yeah and i don't think that computers are going to enslave us and make us into their pigs because why bother? We're, we are not actually that good at anything except making art. art. Yeah. And the problem is the computer, you know, like fractals are infinitely beautiful as well as being um, like a uniform. And so maybe computers will just, you know, maybe their aesthetic sense will be satiated by fractals or by staring at the stars or something. Um, only we are able to create like kind of awful art and maybe computers will appreciate it. You know, maybe they'll be able to see what we actually are good at and say, Hey, no, 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 it's not about you guys are really bad at this stuff. You're bad at government and you're bad at, um, you're bad at building things, frankly. But dance is this fantastic thing that no one else can do. Or dance, the dance that you do is equivalent to the way a flock of birds twists and turns on a beach as one. But you're doing it like with intention rather than as, a, as like an automatic response. And that is unique and beautiful. And as, as our, as godlike intelligences, we just want to watch people dance. I mean, I don't know. We dance for a reason. And it might be that we are closer to God through dance than any amount of efficiency could approximate. <laughs>